but uh, thank you for, for joining us. We've been doing a number of these conversations and um, they seem to uh, generate a lot of interest and a lot of, um, a lot of enthusiasm. So I'm glad to see that people uh, are, are as engaged as they are. And you wrote uh, such a superlative um, essay in the third issue of Sapir. I'm going to, uh, in a minute, talk a little bit about Sapir before we turn uh, to your essay. But I assume you're, you're at home in Jerusalem, right? I'm at home in Jerusalem. <clears throat> well, I'm, uh, so, you know, two centers of, two, two great centers of Jewish, of, of historic Jewish life, um, yeah. although a little different. Um, why don't we, let me uh, sort of offer a, a few preliminaries, Jonathan. Uh, uh, I, I think many of the people on this call have been on previous Sapir calls, but for those who haven't, I just want to introduce this uh, still relatively uh, new uh, Journal of Jewish Conversations, as we, as we subtitle it. It's a quarterly. Uh, you, your, your, uh, your piece appeared in our third issue. Uh, this was our first on social justice. Uh, this is really a technological feat here. Our second on the subject of power and our third on the subject of, uh, of continuity, which is where your piece appears. Sapir uh, was conceived uh, as an effort uh, from the Maimonides Fund, which publishes it, to enlarge um, and enrich Jewish conversations across um, lines of ideology and lines of observance uh, to be as prescriptive as we are hopefully um, uh, diagnostic in our, in our talk to um, uh, include voices uh, that often uh, don't find themselves in the same pages uh, uh, together, secular, uh, uh, secular, religious, left, uh, left and right. And, and really to, you know, the, the, the theme of conversation is, is just central to everything we're doing. So having the opportunity to host these uh, Zoom calls is, um, is, is central to our task. When we started, I should add, when we began this project, the idea was to do four issues. Uh, I'm proud to say, I'm pleased to say, that we are now uh, making Sapir a going concern uh, that will go uh, well beyond its initial, its initial remit. Uh, and uh, we aim to um, uh, keep doing what we're doing, uh, experimenting a little bit with the form to see uh, what works, but hopefully with each issue, just really focusing on one theme in particular. And in the case of the issue in which you appear, that issue was, was continuity. You wrote an essay, uh, really, and I just, I just reread it for probably the fourth time uh, uh, just this morning, the fourth or fifth time, more unites us than divides us, a Haredi, uh, a Haredi perspective. And I just wanna begin, Jonathan, um, by asking you, for those who haven't read the piece, I, I know for those who have, it may seem a bit repetitive, but for those who haven't read the piece, to tell us a little bit about your uh, personal story, because like me, you were afflicted with a University of Chicago education. 
um, and then uh, Yale Law School. Uh, but life took you in, um, a, I think, a, a, a not usual direction. So maybe you want to just tell us about that, that story and how you ended up uh, being a leading light in your community. <laughs> well, there are no highlights except for being born Jewish after a University of Chicago education. We know that, right? <laughs> but um, I don't think anyone would have predicted in my youth that I would end up uh, spending so far 42 years in this community, least of all myself. But um, I think I finally feel at home. And the story that I, that I mentioned in the piece, of course, is one that sort of never leaves me. I was in Israel as with two of my brothers were here the summer of 1976. We were supposed to get together at Bloomfield Stadium for a, a United States bicentennial celebration. And uh, I got on a bus that morning on my way to Ulpan class to improve my Hebrew. And there was pandemonium. I had seen scenes like that before in Hebrew school where we had we watched the dancing uh, upon Ben-Gurion's announcement of the uh, you know, de Declaration of Independence. But uh, to see it in person and experience, and I had no idea what was going on. My Hebrew was not yet very good. My kids will tell you it's still not very good, but in any event, uh, it took me a while to grasp what was going on, but I had never seen such excitement, people hugging and kissing each other. And uh, so I realized that the, the, there had been a rescue at Entebbe, something that was thought impossible. And um, then I started looking around the bus. I, I remember that when I'm on a subway in New York, it never occurs to me to get on the subway and put up my hands and say, we're all Americans. You know, you get taken to Bellevue if you do something like that. Whereas on this bus, I, I had one overwhelming thought, we're all Jews. And I said, well, what's the connection between us? How does that connect us? Why is this Yemenite Jew whose ancestors had uh, were gone from this place uh, 2,500 years ago before the destruction of the second temple what do we have? What do we have in common? And I decided that, you know, I'd been that summer to uh, the Diaspora Museum. I had read the Book of Fire of all the destructions of Jewish communities, beginning with the York Massacre in what 1296. I'm not exactly sure. And uh, and I realized that we were all the product, you no, know, uh, whether we were products of great scholars or peasants, and across the globe and longitudinally through time, we were all the products of an unbroken chain of ancestors for whom they had gained something out of their connection to being Jewish that was so powerful that they bore the stick of pogroms, of murder. You know, you could be, uh, you could be the leader of the, uh, the most powerful man on the Iberian Peninsula, Shmuel Anagi, and you're, son would be torn to death in the marketplace. You had no security, no security that you would live in a place for three generations. And yet, and, that, and plus everything was offered to you. You went over to the other side, you were the most literate people in that society and you had international connections. You were a big bonus, the biggest bonus to a Christian or Islamic society, whichever one you happen to find yourself. So, how do they resist those blandishments and how do they deal with that, that, that degree of uh, brutal oppression? I said, there must be something so powerful about their connection to God 
that it made it worthwhile. But here I am. It's, can you still tap into that? That was my question. Could that still be tapped into? But let me ask you, so um, because this is obviously uh, a subject of not just um, academic interest to me, but of, of personal interest, um, that, that realization, which I think many of us have had some, at some point in, in, in our lives, I had it in a very different way um, discovering how much anti-Semitism there, there was in Europe when a guy named Stevens uh, is in a room uh, with people who don't think of Stevens as a Jewish name. Um, he used to be but, blonde, though. <laughs> but uh, um, but that, that powerful realization of this connection to one's Judaism um, could lead in a variety of uh, directions. One, one the most obvious one perhaps is simply to uh, Zionism. I mean, there are millions of Israelis today who, who had that realization uh, and are living fairly secular lives in Tel Aviv or even in just different neighborhoods of, of uh, Jerusalem throughout, throughout Israel. So what was the pull of, of Torah and of religious scholarship and why was that so essential in your case? Well, because I had identified that unifying element of us, at least in the past. I don't think you can become religious because of anything that happened to your ancestors or choices that your ancestors have made. You're going to eventually have to make the choice for yourself. But that led me in a certain direction. Now, I was returning to America in a month or two to start my practice of law in Chicago. And uh, now, just to be clear for, our, for those who haven't read the essay, you, you, were, you were raised in a somewhat observant conservative household, correct? Yeah, I think that's that's fair. Highly identified. I, to me, the central event of my childhood is my mother coming into my room. I'm 16 years old and she's in tears to wake, to wake us up in the morning. She's in tears. And it's, uh, she's heard that Israel's at war. It's the 1967 war. And, uh, you know, we never let a TV anywhere near our, our, our family dining table. But during the weeks leading up to that, we never talked at the table. We just listened to Abba Eben and the debates at the UN. We were a highly identified family. My grandfather had been the lay leader of the conservative movement in America. The second plaque when you come into the Jewish Theological Seminary is his. Um, so we were raised with a strong Jewish identity. I came to Israel first at the age of 11 with my mother and my next brother. We, uh, we had, it's sort of like Ruth Weiss says, we weren't particularly observant in her book, but she says, but a word was never heard spoken against God. That didn't happen no. in our house. There was no disrespect for religion. We simply didn't know very much about it, but, uh, because I had identified that as the unifying fact, I looked there. It took me two years. I just happened to stumble into a shul in Chicago while living in a predominantly gay neighborhood of Chicago, but there was an old Orthodox shul there, which I stumbled into. The rabbi invited me every week for, uh, for um, two years. When I first met my wife and she told me on our first date that she had spent a year on a kibbutz, uh, I knew that this was the woman I was going to marry because 
I said, who's going to share my interest in Israel? I mean, we were a Zionist home, and I think that that had a, a big impact on me. There's no question that that did have an impact on me. Um, but of our, in our family, four out of five brothers became, uh, joined the Haredi community. My mother is 91 years old now, has uh, over 115 living descendants. So she, she reaped the benefits if they are benefits, and I have no question that they are in her mind, of, uh, of her children's decisions. But we always felt we were following our parents. You told us the most important thing about us was being Jewish. Now you cannot separate be Jewish from the Torah. I mean, that, that's, that is the common thread that runs throughout our history. So I looked there and I was lucky to find this rabbi. I was lucky to find my wife. I was lucky to come to Israel. Um, I was intending to go to JTS uh, rabbinical school when we came to Israel. My wife said to me, maybe we should spend another year around people for whom got, uh, Torah is the center of their lives. And that year is now extended into 42 and a half years. Uh, so I guess we're still on our honeymoon. But so Jonathan, the theme of, our, of the issue is continuity. And I wanna talk a little bit about your views on the state of American Jewry. You cite pieces from uh, Jack Wertheimer and others um, that paint a fairly grim picture um, of the long-term future of, of the American, uh, American Jewish community. Are you, um, I mean, you, you've, you've decided to make, to make your life in Israel. What do you forecast for this side of the Jewish community? Well, you know, they, they say doctors go to uh, Gehenna because they are prone to make predictions. I don't think it's my job to predict uh, the future of the American Jewish community, though I am on record of writing commentary a couple years back that it's entered a demographic death cycle, uh, which is low fertility rates, low rates of marriage, late marriage, uh, uh, extraordinary rates of intermarriage. Uh, but this is not, you know, I, I quote all the statistics there. Alpi Derekateva, through the natural course of events, the non-Orthodox community in America has a limited future, but that's not my business. That's not my business. My business is to know, to talk about what could be done about it. I mean, the statistics are all there. Wertheimer is a provost, was the provost of JTS. He's not writing with any satisfaction or happiness about that, nor am I bringing those statistics with any degree of happiness. But I think as, as, as important as the demographic factors that he points to are is, is the lack of interest in, as, a, as a, a Rabbi John Moskowitz from the Holy Blossom Synagogue in, in uh, Temple in Toronto, one of the premier uh, reformed temples in, in uh, North America has said, there's nobody in the shul, there's nobody here interested in Jewish texts. You don't have enough basis of people who are interested in classical Jewish texts. So I'm not, I'm a social director. I'm not a, a I'm not a teacher of Torah in any real sense. That's the, that's the fundamental problem. How does Judaism become, how does being Jewish become, how do you go about life with a sense of privilege to have been born Jewish? How do you, where does it come from? I mean, I'm, I just did an interview. I just interviewed uh, Ruth Weiss and I pushed her hard on this. Where, what are you gonna, how do you define uh, something that is unique apart from, 
what 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 makes it such a special privilege? What is it about this people that is unique? And I, I do think attaching young Jews to uh, to uh, the Jewish story is is essential to the story because it's as uh, Pascal said, it's the greatest miracle in history. It is. And is it your view, Jonathan, that in effect what's happening to the Jewish community, at least in the United States, by, and by that I mean the, the, the non-Orthodox Jewish community, uh, reform or conservative uh, or, or otherwise, but non-Orthodox, and in effect what is the, the, the demographic trends, the diminution in sort of a Jewish sensibility uh, affiliation, observance, uh, practice, self-identification, that that is, that is inevitable, that, 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 that nothing other than a turn towards a greater Torah observance could, could alter those trends? I don't want to go that far. I don't want to, I really don't want to engage in in polemics, that's you know. It's, no, no, I'm not. I'm no, not. No, I, mean, look, no, this I'm is, saying, this is I, a no, I, I, I just, I don't want to be. I don't want to be the voice of of doom. What I do think is, if we cannot restore, first of all, restore the idea, the sense that this is a primary identity. Is if it's a tertiary identity, then it makes more sense to, you know, to uh, marry somebody who shares your taste in Truffaut films than it does to marry. A fellow Jew, unless you can identify some core of your existence which is connected to something Jewish, and how to identify something Jewish. All the things in the Pew survey that American Jews identify as these are Jewish: a sense of social justice, a certain sense of humor, uh, particular foods. These are all things that can be shared by anybody, and they're not uniquely Jewish, exclusively Jewish. They don't really provide a reason to marry another Jew. They don't give you a sense of what it is that you want to preserve. What are you passing on? I mean, in that one of my University of Chicago classes, I remember reading the epigram in Paul Goodman's uh, Growing Up Absurd, which is taken from Pirke Avos, The Ethics of the Fathers. The task is not yours to complete, neither are you free to leave it off. And I understood myself then, oh, there's a chain here. There's a chain. It either ends with me or I have something to pass on. But what do I have to pass on? What's the content of what I have to pass on? We always told my parents, you have nobody to blame because you told us the most important thing was being Jewish and we came to find out what that was. Will I be the end of the chain or will I be a part of the chain going forward? Without attaching to the Jewish story, without attaching to Jewish history, how does one do it uh, without, and I think that really does require at least some interest in Jewish text. I remember you once told me that you were being hassled by a local Asian Torah rabbi who wanted you to come in and learn with him. <laughs> and you were resisting. I bet you're I'm still, still I'm still being hassled by that very, very same rabbi. Okay, good for him. Good for him. <laughs> I'll succumb eventually. <laughs> yeah, but I can't come to America. I haven't been out of this country and I haven't been out of here in three years. I can't come to do it. You'll have to succumb. Let me turn, Jonathan, a little bit towards uh, towards Israel. Um, and, you know, I, one of the things I, I loved about your essay that's just the title, More Unites Us Than Divides Us, that often does not seem to be the case. I mean, if you... Uh, 
um, I have met secular Israelis who have, um, uh, um, shall we say, antipathetic feelings about, say, the um, Islamic Republic of uh, Iran, but that's nothing like the way they feel about uh, the Haredi community. Um, there, is, there is a kind of, in some quarters of Israel, kind of bald fury at, at what they see as a community that uh, is not pulling its weight in a, in a country, uh, country under siege. Is that your sense now after all, after 42 years in Israel or 45, I think, if it was 1976? Um, no, I came back to America to practice law. Uh, okay, so 40, so anyway, 40, more than 40 years in Israel is, is your sense that that, that's, that, that, that hostility has uh, grown, subsided, stayed the same, characterize relations between the Haredi community and the secular world as you've seen them develop in your time in Israel? Okay, um, I'm a big Israel booster, you should know. In one of my other hats, to go on college campuses and to defend, uh, to speak about Israel, it's something that I love doing, so I'm not uh, abashed about that. Um, I think that's part of the story. The antipathy that you describe is part of the story, but it's only part of the story. No one has ever gone out, nobody, nobody that I'm aware of has ever tried to open up, to advertise classes in Torah, to advertise uh, for secular Israelis and not drawn a crowd. It just doesn't happen. There is an interest, and I think that one of the differences, there's a greater potential in Israel to interest people in, in the Jewish people than there is in America. In America, it's an identity you can pick or choose and leave, and as the college campuses become more and more hostile to being Jewish, and uh, given the susceptibility of teenagers to social pressures, it's gonna get harder and harder in America. In Israel, everybody, uh, if you're going into the army and you're gonna risk your life over a period of years, um, at a young age, you have to ask yourself the question, well, why does the collective existence of the Jewish people matter? It's not, it can't be that it's just to produce Nobel Prize winners. That, that can't be the answer to, uh, to that question. Why does it matter? Why am I being called upon to risk my life for this people? But, I, but Israelis do have a strong sense of that. I, in the 2014 uh, war in Gaza, there were a number of letters that were read from secular Israelis left for their parents, to, to only be open in the event that I don't return. And inevitably they began, don't cry for me. And this is one letter that I remember particularly, don't cry for me. Because if I haven't come back, I'm proud to have given my life defending the Jewish people, my homeland, my family. But it, it's, it was striking to me how many of them began with the Jewish people. That there is, however attenuated, a sense that this country is about the Jewish people. I mean, that's one of the most notable differences between Israelis and, and Israeli Jews and American Jews. American Jews, this is one of the most depressing aspects and Wertheimer talks about it, Stephen Cohn talks about it, the declining sense of Jewish peoplehood and responsibility for one another. Um, that, that, that's scary. It's, it's also quite frightening, for instance, I mean, the response to the uh, JPOC, JPCOA, 
uh, something like that. JCPOA. JCPOA, thanks. Uh, I was writing about Iran this week. In any event, um, you know, th th that over half of American Jews under 35 could describe the, the destruction of Israel as it would not be a personal tragedy for them is so contrary to the way that Jews always related to each other through history. You know, they used to say, uh, uh, Jacob Schiff, I think, said if a Jew, uh, if a Jew gets hit in, in Russia, then they cry out in America. I mean, this idea of our interrelatedness that we feel the pain uh, throughout the Jewish people, to no longer feel that is, is really one of the most telling symptoms. There's hostility in Israel and there's understandable hostility, I guess. Can you, can you say another word on the word understandable? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the understandable part is that if your children are going to the army and uh, may be killed and you will spend three years uh, dreading every, every phone call is a potential moment of dread and someone else's children are not, that hostility is understandable. The, uh, uh, I mean, what are the explanations? That's a longer subject, which I, you know, I'm, I expect. Well, let's, let, let, let's, take, let's take that on because one of the themes in your essay are the, the, the Mechinot that are active in the, uh, in the IDF and to some extent the with- pre, The pre-induction academy, yeah. The pre-induction academies and also to some extent with, with uh, um, uh, Haredi, Haredi recruits. But do you see movement within the Haredi community that says, we need to rethink our relationship to the Jewish state and our obligations in the Jewish state as we move from a tiny minority within it to um, an ever larger share of the overall Jewish population. Uh, that's for, for sure that change is taking place. Uh, however, however it is articulated, but it's taking place. I mean, we are no longer, <clears throat> The original attitude of the community when it started was circle the wagons, we're under, we're under assault and they'll do everything possible to destroy us. And there were, you know, there were causes for that as well, but uh, that day has passed. I mean, we're just simply too big. 30% of the entering first graders are in Haredi school frameworks. Many of them, I would say probably, are not coming from Haredi homes, but their parents have somehow decided this is education that they want for, the, for their kids. But whatever it is, we're no longer so threatened. Inevitably, inevitably, <clears throat> more and more Haredi are going out into the general public. I have one son, you know, I have three sons. Most of my daughter-in-laws and all my sons have, have uh, secular degrees. They've been out there. Do I worry about it? Yes, my son who's unmarried and starting the Hebrew University Law School and business program, it's, yeah, I am worried about it. But it's, uh, I'm, I'm worried about, you know, the, 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 the things that will, could draw him away from, from religious observance too, but they're going out there. We are out there. I think the model, uh, the, the, the historian Jacob Katz has a model of um, Jewish communities in Europe they interacted with the surrounding Gentile community, but their sense of value and identification and value derived from within the internal community. 
I like to see the Haredi community moving more in that direction, but there's in addition to moving in that direction, they're also moving in the direction of feeling a responsibility for reaching out to, to uh, secular and, and traditional Jews. I mean, it's remarkable, these pre-induction academies, they started a program nine years ago with three of them, that's 150 students. They've grown from that to 1,200. And they never had a shortage of volunteers who were willing in, in, the, in the Haredi community who were willing to be partners to, uh, to invite students into their home to develop a relationship over a period of years. There's never been a shortage, no matter how many uh, the pre-induction academies seek entrance into this program, there's never been a shortage of Haredi volunteers. There are a lot of people who are seeking that contact and who feel that they benefited from that contact. A lot of the stereotypes are being broken down. Um, maybe, maybe the numbers are relatively small Vis -vis and when and when you see when you see um, young young Haredi men entering military service and coming back, how do you see them changed? I mean, do you think? I'm, I'm, what I'm curious about here, I guess, is you're describing a community that, and you're looking at it from the inside, in a community that seems to be changing and evolving and rethinking a number of, uh, I don't want to say assumptions, but a number of relationships. And then I'm, I'm going to get into that. And by the way, uh, I should add here that as we reach the midpoint of our conversation, those who are listening in, there's a chat box, there is a question box, and you should start uh, putting in questions. I've known Jonathan for a very long time. As you can see, he's very intellectually agile, uh, in addition to being a very lovely uh, human being. So if you want to ask tough questions, Slippery, he's, he's, slippery, but lovely. <laughs> he, he went to Yale Law School. He went to Chicago. He's used to uh, he's used to cultures of intellectual uh, challenge. So don't 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 hesitate to uh, to ask questions that uh, that challenge. But getting back to it, you're describing a community that really is is rethinking its relationship. And I'm going to get to a, another side of this question in a moment, but. Let me ask you first, how, what do you think that the Haredi community is learning from the less observant or the secular Israeli community? In what way is that changing? You mentioned your son in business school and some apprehensions that you have. Is this a broad phenomenon or, or is it just in, in, in pieces? It is, for the women it's broad. For the men, I mean, each one of my daughter-in-laws, I have a speech therapist, an architect, a, uh, a daughter, a 30-year-old daughter-in-law who's the uh, controller of a non-religious publicly traded company. Uh, what else do we have? My daughter's the head of a computer department at Bank Discount. I mean, they all have, they, they have some kind of degrees. Among, the, among my- And, and what's your theory about why women are so much better than men? No, it's that they're, well, first of all, their education is different. Uh, listen, <laughs> I'm, not, uh, I'm not convinced on that score, though I do think the, uh, the of the of males is a real societal problem. It doesn't work out well for men and it doesn't work out too well for women either. So that's, uh, uh, you know, that's uh, something we could worry about. That's another discussion, but, um, uh, 
You have to be different. What do they learn from these encounters? First of all, they get rid of stereotypes. It's never good to go around with too many stereotypes of people on the other side. I mean, one of the poisonous things about modern American society, as I, as I see it, is that people don't meet others. And, you know, they claim you have officers of diversity and, and whatnot, and, and outnumbering the number of students at Yale, the officers of diversity, but they don't believe in diversity. They don't believe in intellectual exchange. They don't believe in any of the debate that was so central to our college experience, I believe, I think. And uh, recently Yale Law School said, what could we do to get you more involved in our alumni affairs? I told them, stop embarrassing me first and then we'll, we'll talk about the rest. <laughs> the, uh, Did you get a response? No. <laughs> Even I, when a Jewish student at the University of Chicago was reported in, in Hadassah Magazine saying that she was physically afraid to go back to campus after, after uh, distance learning, wearing a Jewish star, I also thought my alumni contributions there would also decline and told them so. That also I didn't get a response. In any event, where, where were we? We're talking about Haredi kids. Well, we're talking about what, the way in which exposure to secular life is transforming the, the Haredi community. And after that, I wanna ask you the reverse of that question, which is, and this is part of your essay, the way in which secular Israel is now beginning to encounter Haredi, the Haredi community in a different kind of, uh, kind of way. And you described a few of the programs, which I think are kind of fascinating and worth, worth dilating on. So take those questions in any order you'd like. First of all, it's always bad to demonize people you view as the other. And it makes you very vulnerable too. Uh, when a secular Jew is told that Haredi they spend 13 hours a day reciting psalms. They never work. They don't do anything. They're not striving for anything. They have no goals. And he meets an actual Haredi, uh, and nothing like that stereotype. Then he thinks, well, everything I've ever been told is a lie. Uh, I've been told, I've been filled with nonsense my whole life. Maybe I should check this community out. And, and it goes both ways, incidentally. When you've been told that all, uh, you know, all secular young people your age are thinking about is the next hookup or something. And you find out, no, that's not true. That's not true. They're thinking about a lot of things. Uh, we also think about tacos. What? Sorry. <laughs> Brett, you may be beyond me there. The, uh, but, Go ahead, sorry. Um, it's, it, you find out that they're, they're different. I said, you know, I. In a conversation with Jonathan Haidt not too long ago, I said to him the difference between an Israeli kid, why don't we have this, this uh, political correctness, why don't we have this stifling of, uh, of speech amongst Isra Israeli university students? I said, because they're adults. They've been through life and death situations. When they start university, they are adults. They've done more than most people. They're not still in the stage where Jordan Peterson can say to them, you want to talk about the world economy and socialism versus capitalism, first clean up your room. They've cleaned up their room and done a lot more. Um, those stereotypes break down and, 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 and they, act, they can be risky, by the way. You build up the stereotype, you demonize the other, and you simply make them more attractive when they, everybody will at some point discover that there's something not right about these. I want, I, I do, my prescription for American Jewry, like my prescription for 
for, for Israeli Jewry is expose yourself to Jews for whom being Jewish is their, their identity. In other words, you can't go up to them and ask if you were born again, would you prefer to be born not Jewish because they have no sense of themselves that's removed from being Jewish. That's so fundamental, that is them. It's, it's not all encompassing, they do other things, they may play a certain sport, a certain instrument, they may, but, but that is them. That's indistinguishable from their self-identity. Meet those Jews, understand people who think, meet people for whom being born Jewish really is the greatest, the greatest privilege. And, uh, and, and, then, and then find out why anybody could, could think that way. And uh, I mean, luckily American society today makes it a lot easier for us all the time because it, as it becomes more and more insane, we feel like we're, you know, we're just watching the inmates uh, misbehave. When Bill Mayer becomes your favorite comedian, then you know that they, from a comedy perspective, have gotten pretty. pretty you know, big. Bill Maher, who uh, uh, this show I know well, uh, is, uh, is a Jewish boy, um, uh, at least on one side of his family, um, and a great supporter of the state of Israel, I might add. I, I want to ask just one final question before I turn to the uh, to our audience. Talk to us a little bit about Kesher Yehudi and what it does. Okay, so Kesher Yehudi started about 12 years ago. Um, and it was basically setting up phone learning relationships from people who were coming in from, you know, who responded to advertisements and they said they'd like to learn with somebody over the phone. I mean, the power of these relationships is, is really extraordinary, the number of them that have gone on from now until then that have continued all these years. About nine years ago, somebody named Gilal Olstein. Olstein was born on a Shomer Hatzier kibbutz. That's a kibbutz where they probably serve pork on Yom Kippur. But sometime after he finished the army, he was sent as a Jewish agency shaliach to Salonika to bolster Jewish identity. He said, well, I don't know anything about being Jewish. How can I bolster Jewish identity? And in the course of that time, he started learning with the local Rav. Uh, didn't become religious, but he came back to Israel, a completely changed person. He became, got a PhD in Jewish studies, his history at Yad Vashem, began to lead five to eight uh, uh, trips to, to, to Poland every year. And he always asked them one central question, what makes you different because you're Jewish? How does that make you different? How are you different than anybody else? What is the essential quality that you can identify with? And he now says the purpose why he started this, and he approached Mrs. Seela Schneider. She grew up in Mea Sharim. She's one of 11 children. No, she's a mother of 11. She's probably one of 11 children as well, but I can't, I can't say that for sure. And she had started Kesher UD, and he said, can you create a program for me, for my students in the, these mechinot, these pre-induction academies, which were created after the Rabin assassination precisely to reinstill some Zionist fervor, knowledge of Jewish history and knowledge of the community, the various communities of Israel um, to train future officers. I mean, an extraordinary high number, high, uh, high number of people who go to these academies. They take an extra year off between high school and the army, do go on to leadership positions, including as officers in the army. Can you create a program for us in basic Jewish ideas? And the program, the, the key to this program is ongoing 
one-on-one -on -one learning with the same person over a period of time. It's the development of relations. And she always says, and for this, she got an Israel Jerusalem Unity Prize in 2016. She always says, tells the Haredi volunteers, if you're coming into this because you wanna do a, a, an act of chesed to share your knowledge with a poor benighted secular Jew, this is not the program for you. If you don't think you're gonna get, every time two Jews get together, that they should both gain something from one another, that they have the potential to gain, that there's something unique. This person is also, my, you know, in the essay I say, my, my granddaughter said when I turned 70, uh, your birthday is the day that God decided that he can no longer, his, he needed you to, for his world. So that's true of every single Jew in the world. That's true of all of us. And if you can't find that point of connection, sometimes it's hard amidst the fighting and yelling and screaming, but if you can't find that point of connection, you're, you're, you're missing something, it's there. And she insists on that. And it's amazing to see these, these study partners saying things like, I can't imagine my life without her. And that's as likely to come from the Haredi partner. It's, it's, it's really a very powerful thing. And uh, as you know, when people get older, they start crying more easily. So I have to always watch out when I'm describing this program. But well, I mean, imagine a boy who was in, a, in one of these mechinot, 2014, he gets a 12 hour leave on the Gaza border. He calls his parents, then he calls, tries to call his Chavrusa who's in, um, in the north and uh, uh, close to Haifa. And he says, I want you to come down and learn with me. And that, that the married man who, whom he called, his, the head of the yeshiva in which he was learning paid for his camp to get down to the Gaza. And when the young man crossed the border, he kissed his mother, he kissed his father, he kissed his sister. And he told him, but I have so little time. The most important thing I can do now is learn Torah with my chabrusa. This impact of feeling that this is what I need now. This is what I need in combat. This is what I need to protect me, strengthen me, give me some sense that I'm connected to, to, this, to the Jewish people. These are, these are not one-time, these are not one-time results. But I do think it's that crucial that you not make the, the criterion of judgment of the success of the program, how many people became religiously observant. There are plenty of those, but it's not, that should not be the, the basis of judgment. Did you create a relationship? Jonathan, I wanna to turn uh, to some of our, um, some of the people who have been tuning in. Uh, and um, I've always said in all of these conversations, tough questions get asked alongside uh, um, uh, the softballs. Steven Rosenberg uh, writes, great essay and I don't disagree, but plain devil's advocate, you have the Haredi community that won't, for the most part, fight in the IDF to, to defend the only Jewish state in the world, but wants to have a major say over issues like prayer at the wall. They can't have it both ways. It's unreasonable. How do you defend the Haredi who contribute very little to Israeli society financially? You want to have the largest say. And I'm, I don't know Stephen uh, Rosenberg, but I suspect he's speaking for uh, a fair bit of uh, um, uh, Jewishly-minded, pro-Israel-minded uh, 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 Jews? Well, first of all, I don't think it's true that the Haredi community doesn't contribute to Israeli society. I think giving a sense of purpose, giving some fleshing out that the Jewish people for whom that young man who didn't come back in 2014 was defending by giving, by maintaining a sense 
of that there is there is a continuity. But the wall is not just a Haredi place, and it's not just Haredim who think that it should remain. It's a symbol of Jewish continuity and unity. In other words, what, what's being talked about there is really the continuation of, of practices, except for the times when we had no access to the, uh, to the Kotel at all, which had been normative there for 1,500 years. You're not talking about a Haredi position. This is not an issue, incidentally, that, that excites too many Jews in, 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 in Israel. A lot of people come to the Kotel. The army induction ceremonies are held at the Kotel. Uh, nobody says, I'm not going to go there because uh, women don't have an, there's not an egalitarian uh, uh, space there. Now, I, I personally, on the list of issues in the world, whether there should be a place at Robinson's Arch, it could be as expanded. I mean, I think $85 million will be. It's 85 million shekels is a lot of money to spend for a place which will remain largely unused. But should it be there, I think the people who would suffer most from it would be uh, the reform movements because they're simply, they're simply, it's gonna, it's gonna remain empty and it's gonna remain an embarrassment. But be that as it may, it's not true that we don't contribute. We contribute something very fundamental, which is a sense of what it is that has allowed us to get to this point where we create, where the state of Israel could be created, where the state of Israel could flourish as it has. Um, and, you know, the religious community, including the national religious community, uh, were different than the Haredi community, but certainly the most fervent participants in the army, they, it's almost, a, it's a religious commandment as, as far as they're concerned. Um, it, it does contribute to the state. The amount of people, in terms of Aliyah, in terms of the times that is spent in Israel, in terms of the investment in businesses here. The, the Haredi community is a major economic factor too. I mean, we don't have any tourism now, but when tourism comes back, you'll see these things are all uh, in largely, this, this is the community which is most likely to travel, whose children are most like, children are certain to learn in Israel after high school, and many of them will, will end up living here. So to say that it doesn't contribute economically is simply, is not true. So let me ask you on that, you, on something you just mentioned. Uh, Jeanette uh, Reinhardt uh, asks, I'm curious about Jonathan's views on the Haredi position on secular, math, science, et cetera, education, and how it fits into his view of more united. You know, I personally, um, I personally would like to see, I, I, I'm not opposed uh, certainly as a theoretical, theological issue, I'm not opposed to any of those studies and, and provided them for, for my children. I also saw that, you know, my youngest son had to do a preparatory year before going into the Hebrew University. And, you know, I got a 786 on my SAT math, but he far surpassed any math I had ever done in high school by the time he, uh, after one year. So a lot of this can be caught up, though I think it's, it's a mistake to say that that's how you should do it. I don't think that's how you should do it. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, I have, I spent, Brett, you should know, I spend most of my time as a critic, an internal critic. Uh, I always used to say, Baruch Hashem, I can write for the Jews and Post and its distinguished editor um, by presenting the best of the Haredi world uh, to the outside world. And that I have at the same time the ability to write and address directly 
my own community through the pages of Mishpachar or whatever other uh, Haredi publications I'm writing for. That, that was very important to me to have both access to both. Um, and, uh, you know, my criticism, I think that we did take what was an elite educational model, which was two, at one or two young men from every town in Europe would be sent to yeshivas. The rest were mostly working by the time they were 13. The advanced edge, and the ones who went to yeshivas at 13 could, were the, of the suited to learn 10 to 12 hours a day in Gamora learning, which is very hard. I'm exhausted after an hour, I can tell you that. And I've had some serious studies in my life, but nothing as exhausting as, as Talmudic learning. They were suited for that. Now we've taken an elite model and imposed it on an entire society and it doesn't work because too many young men are can't sustain that. They need more breaks during the day. They need uh, they need a variety of, of 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 subjects. Math and math and science would all be good. The the, the girls generally get them. Uh, probably not at the highest level, but there are you know there are schools. One of my my daughter's school I think was tops in the country in a lot of national exams um, when she was in school. But I'm saying. It's not, it's not a theological issue. In my opinion, it is not a theological issue. There are enough models in Jewish history of religious Jews who have been exposed to, uh, to secular studies. When the secular studies become a means of, of um, imposing or trying to imposing on us, then that's a different story. But I think it's a big mistake to think that uh, in America, it's it's less and less the case, uh, except maybe in Lakewood, New Jersey, where there's no secular studies for high school students. One of the hardest things, I wrote about this recently, if we want large scale uh, Haredi Aliyah from America, Aliyah from the Shiva community in America, we're gonna have to adjust or at least accept different models for, for Haredi education in Israel because they're, they're simply not used to a model of boys at the age of uh, 11, 12, stopping all secular learning until they may decide that it's necessary for a, a livelihood to go out and get some, subsequently to get some education. Jonathan, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I wanna respect uh, time constraints and we're running to the end. So we're gonna have a bit of a lightning round. Um, so just very brief answers. Um, because Hannah Rothstein um, asks please three times, I'm gonna ask you how typical is your family? Uh, she writes, most Haredim do not have secular educations and work actively to prevent their kids from getting one. Uh, and then says there are data on this that you're ignoring. Do you have a brief answer to Hannah? Um, okay, we're not exactly typical. We're first, my wife and I are both Balchuvas. My wife and I are both junior Phi Beta Kappas. We both have a secular education. We both work and, and we come from a different background. Uh, and my kids happen to be exceptional, mostly exceptionally bright. But the the ones I'm okay, they're you know, Bliyan Hara. It's like what is it, Carson uh, Kyler? Where where does he grow? We're like that, but we're not so so unique. We're not unique in the community in which we live. We're not, uh, and the trends are like this. To say that we're typical, there's many sub subgroups within the Haredi community. There's the traditional Yerushalmi community. There's the Sephardi community, which does push secular education more intensely. There's a Hasidic community in 
there's so many sub-communities to make a generalization about the community, but the trend lines are that the Rosenblums will not be the, the only ones with some secular education or who later get it. Because the boys in yeshiva who want to go in for long-time learning, they also want a wife who can make a decent living. That, that, involve, that almost inevitably involves some secular education. Okay, a couple of quick more questions. Paul Meyer want, says that you mentioned a book that sounded like the Book of Fire. You was that a what was the book that you mentioned? At okay, the that's beginning? there's a book as you go from the first floor. I haven't been in the Diaspora Museum in many many years, but as you go from the first floor in the, in the days in 1976, as you went from the first floor to the top floor, there was a large volume which you could go through illuminated uh, uh, paintings pictures of different destructions, starting with the York massacre and I guess moving to the Holocaust. It's just, uh, that's what they, I think it was called the Book of Fire, but this goes back a long, long way. Um, and then there's a question for me from Shlomo Gertz. Uh, how do I access your column without having to subscribe to the left's flagship newspaper of record? Oh, that's and a good one. My answer is, am I, if you want to help me eat or not, Shlomo, so uh, subscribe. Uh, and uh, it's not uh, really true, Brett. Your columns are so good that they get sent around by the, the ones who you're, you're, fall you're, on their you're, sword you're, you're, and you're, help, you're helping him. You're helping him not feed me. I want to help him. <laughs> help contribute to my to my children's college tuitions. We've hit the one o'clock hour, Jonathan, and I suspect that a lot of people here could could last another hour in a in a fruitful uh, dialogue uh, debate. Um, uh, I. I, I've known you for almost 20 years since I became uh, almost exactly 20 years ago editor of, of the Jerusalem uh, Post. Uh, I've known you as a beautiful, beautiful prose writer and polemicist and thinker and someone who has spent his life um, in a process of engagement. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I was so eager to have you uh, contribute. And I hope that those on this call, even those who aren't on board with everything you have to say, see that spirit of robust engagement in, um, in the way that you, uh, in the way that you think and the way you write and um, the kind of uh, joy you bring to every discussion. So I just wanted to thank you for, for doing this talk. Um, thank you for contributing. The essay um, uh, is uh, More Unites Than Divides Us in the third issue of Sapir, our continuity issue. We're hard at work on our fourth, which will should be coming out uh, early, uh, early next year. And there will be a lot more of this. Um, and uh, I want to particularly thank the audience for being so engaged and, and um, I think attentive, I hope. I hope it's been a good, uh, a, good, uh, a good way to spend your lunch. Jonathan, have a uh, lovely evening in Jerusalem. Um, and hopefully, um, uh, COVID allowing, um, I'll see you uh, before too long and, uh, and stay well. Um, and Can I just put in a plug, Brett, for yes. if you want to support your children, I want to support mine. If anybody wants to you know, find out more of my views and about 2,500 pieces are collected at www, one word, jewishmediaresources.com and you can subscribe there and it's free. 
It's not like Substack. You'll do much better than Substack. Or even the New York Times. Right. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. A wonderful conversation. And I look forward, hopefully, to seeing you in person before too long. Thanks, Have a great, great evening. Bye-bye, Brett. Thank you.